You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Commerce, labor, state, defense, uh, energy, uh, critical infrastructure, etc. All of that will be wide open for any adversary to look at. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Pete Ford. He's Senior Vice President of Federal Operations at QSecure. We're talking about the implications of quantum computing. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories this week, we have uh, a bit of follow-up here. You want to uh, take us through what our listeners have sent in for us? Well, before we get to the, what the listeners have sent in, I have two pieces of information. Ah. Uh, number one is there has been uh, an arrest in what is believed to be the Rockstar and Uber hacks. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, not a lot of information coming out about the arrest, the arrest because the person is a minor. Mm. Um, but the British police have picked up somebody. Right. Uh, and uh, we have a link. We'll put a link in the show notes. There's an article on Bleeping Computer that discusses it. Okay. Another thing is uh, the week before we recorded this episode, uh, Hurricane Ian moved through Florida yeah. and did a significant amount of damage to a couple of areas down there, Fort Myers being one of them. Um, uh, what's going to happen right now is there's going to be scams around this, Dave. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen, so just be mindful of it. Uh, that's, that's, I just want to advise people that listen to this show. That's, they, they know that that most, most of our listeners are, would, you know, these guys watch the news cycles. They're going to do this. Uh, and finally, uh, we did get a, uh, Dustin writing in a letter from Dustin who writes in with information, uh, from our listener last week, coincidentally also named Dustin, uh, which is interesting. I was, I had to look and see if these were the same people. They are not (laughs) just two guys named Dustin. Uh, And Dustin writes, listening to your most recent episode now, I'm a registered health information management technician working for a children's facility in the medical records department. Ah. I can say that the person who wrote in about their pediatrician's office and obtaining medical records, that he should have been made to produce ID to pick up in person in that way. Hmm. So he should have been asked for his ID. Mm -hmm. Uh, furthermore, the pediatrician's office should have submitted a continuation of care release of information request, and those records should have been sent directly to the pediatrician without involving the patient slash parent or anything other than perhaps a signed authorization. So hmm. there is infrastructure that allows that to happen, apparently. Right, right. That was one of my questions. As far as faxing in healthcare, it is still the best way to get documents that are time-sensitive, communicated, and sent between medical facilities. Most now use some sort of faxing software integration that works similar to email, but when you are taking those provider offices that are outliers, those that are out in the far-reaching corners of the countryside, fax may still be their best or only option. Hmm. Well, that, that's a good point. Um, you know, infrastructure is not the same. We, we have the luxury of living in one of the more developed parts of the country, Dave. Yeah. Uh, but I frequently travel to the less developed parts right. uh, out in Appalachia. That, it's an excellent point. Believe me, all of us in healthcare want to get rid of faxing personal informa- personal health information, PHI, but I'm afraid the technology is not currently available to all healthcare entities to provide instant communication and the transfer of information. 
A big part of this is a thing called interoperability and trying to get every healthcare entity on a page where they all are okay with sharing information back and forth has proven hard to do given the fact that a lot of healthcare entities are also a for-profit business and interoperability is not a friendly word to profit seekers. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. So thank you, Dustin, (laughs) for writing that in. Uh, I will agree with that, but there are other ways we could go about doing this. I remember... Uh, I haven't used this system in a long time, but we used to have a secure way of delivering documents uh, to our customers via a, an encrypted website. You know, we'd, we'd, the, the yeah. files would be stored securely and somebody else could go and get them and we'd provide a link uh, and then information via another medium. Uh, well, I've noticed like with most of my healthcare providers now, they have some sort of portal that you go to. Yes. And they're, they seem to be quite secure. They, you know, there's usually, in fact, I think all of them have some type of multi-factor authentication built in. And, yep. Um, but Please. that way, instead of emailing stuff back and forth, they, they can post things to the portal and you can go to the portal and they can share things. So I've seen test results and notes from my doctor and things like that. So, right. so you know, that seems to work pretty well. The product I've seen is called MyCharts, and I've yep. seen this at multiple places. And I think that's an Epic product okay. that integrates directly with the uh, the electronic health record. Ah, system. okay. So you're actually looking at the patient view of the database through that website, which is great. Yeah. Right? No. I, I'm happy that we're moving in that direction. Yeah, yeah. But Dustin, <laughs> Dustin makes a good point. You know, not every small office like out in West Virginia is not going to have an EHR system. Right. They're not going to do it because right. they they might not be making that much money. And I'll tell you, Epic is not cheap. Yeah. It's very expensive. No, and I, I think the point also that uh, if you're running a for-profit business, that you you want to have you know, gatekeeping leads to, to dollars, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so if you can charge somebody for access to something, then you have an incentive to do that, whether or not it's ultimately in the patient's best interest or not. But or even ethical. That's a conversation for another day. <laughs> right. All right. Well, our thanks to Dustin for uh, writing in. We do appreciate uh, your expert insights. Um, one other quick little note here okay. we got from uh, someone on uh, Twitter uh, whose uh, Twitter handle is at ToddySM and says, about your catch of the day. Uh, so last uh, week we had a, a catch of the day where the person p- purported to be someone named Vladimir Petrova. Right. And uh, Toddy SM writes in and says, about your catch of the day, Vladimir is normally a male name, while all names that end with A are normally female surnames. In addition to the bad English, I doubt that Vladimir Petrova is a combination you will ever see in a real name. <laughs> so Petrova is a female name is what he's saying. Yes, right. yes. So <laughs> there you go. But, you know, that's the kind of thing where unless you're a native native speaker or someone familiar with that language, that could easily slip by, which right. it, it I, did for I us. I wouldn't have recognized it. I'll bet Petrova is the female version of Peter mm. in, mm-hmm. in Russian. And that's yeah. just a guess based on the uh, my hobby-like Love of linguistics. <laughs> okay. <I guess. laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for uh, sending in uh, your thoughtful feedback here. Of course, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at the cyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories here. I'm going to kick things off for us. Uh, kind of a quick one here for me this week. This is uh, from John Brodkin over at Ars Technica. And this is about the FCC advancing a plan to require blocking of spam texts from bogus numbers. Okay. In the um, what the hell is taking you so long department, (laughs) we have – so 
There are a couple of interesting things here. So the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, they, they have uh, released a plan that requires mobile carriers to block a wide range of illegal text messages. So this is a notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, basically, the FCC is putting the word out to uh, the public mm-hmm. that this is something that they're planning on doing. Um, there's a comment period. I was about to say, is there a comment period? There's a 30-day comment period and then another 15 days for replies to comments. Uh, after that, the FCC can draft new requirements, and then they'll set up a final vote, blah, 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 blah. I'm uh, going to go comment on this, Dave. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My comment is going to be, what the hell is taking you so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but that, there's an interesting little side note to that as well. Um, so basically what they're saying is that wireless providers will be required to block texts at the network level mm. that are from invalid, un- unallocated, or unused numbers and numbers on the do not originate list. I didn't know there was a do not originate list. I have to find out what that list is. <laughs> That's a, a new one to me. Do not call list, but I didn't know there was a do not. I guess it's a, like a, a block list for uh, or, or or the origin of numbers, which right. is interesting. Um, you know, they talk about how rightfully so the American people are fed up with scam texts. Uh, that's from uh, FCC chairwoman Jessica Rosen Warsel. Um, so I think this is good news. Um Sort of a side note uh, that we've alluded to is that um, this has been on the FCC's docket for quite a while. And this article points out that the timing is interesting in that there were lots of other things that the FCC was working on that were also uh, you know, similar types of things. And that got addressed. And this just kept sort of being on the back burner. Really? Yeah. But then, according to a report from Axios... Uh, the vote finally happened after a reporter started asking around why it was taking so long. <laughs> good. Yeah. Media doing its job. <laughs> right. Well, f- I, that's a really good point. Right. You know, that's why, and, and, and as you and I have talked about, we've seen this hollowing out, particularly of local media. Absolutely. It's problematic because you don't have people asking these questions. You know, what's taking you so long? Right. So evidently, once this reporter started poking around, uh, the folks on the FCC uh, commission Voted. Uh, they voted for four zero uh, bipartisan to say yes. Yep. This needs to be taken care of. Good. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, good stuff. So uh, you know, it looks like we are month and a half, maybe two months away from actually seeing some action on this. I but, hope so. Uh, it'd be interesting to see to what degree it actually makes a difference and uh, how the text scammer spammers pivot and, and come oh, at it. In, in yeah. They're not going to take way. this line down. They're going to do something else. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to find some way to get around this. Uh, hopefully this will make it much more difficult for them and maybe there'll be costs involved for them. Right. I think if you can impose costs on these guys, higher costs that, that, that stops it. Yeah. You can just make it so that they have to pay lots of money to send these kind of, uh, texts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it pretty much ends it. Yeah. This article points out that robocalls are still a bigger problem in terms of the complaints that the FCC gets, but uh, text messages, I think, are are number two in terms of things people contact the FCC and uh, have a headache about. Yeah, I would like like the ability to block political robocalls and texts. Mm -hmm. And there's a big First Amendment issue there. Yeah. um, Because people do have the right to uh, the right to express their opinions and and all that stuff. Freedom of speech is very important to me. But uh, this is my platform that I pay for. Mm -hmm. This is not your platform. You don't get to send me whatever you want and 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 invade my space that I pay for Mm -hmm. with this. I, I think I think there's some 
limit here. I don't want to hear from anybody on my phone about <laughs> an upcoming election. Yeah. Right. I, I'll share. It's funny. Uh, my co-host Ben Yellen from the Caveat Podcast was recently put out a a similar uh, complaint on Twitter that he was really tired of all of the political messaging that he was getting. And I shared a, a bit of uh, advice that I think I've shared here before as well. A uh, friend of the show, Ray Redacted on Twitter, uh, gave me the tip once to make a folder in your email account that anything that contains the word unsubscribe goes into that folder ah. for later review. And boy, does it clean out your inbox. <laughs> it, that it, it is unclutters. a great idea. Yeah. I mean, you still got to check it every now and then, just yeah. like you got to check your spam folder. Well, But it just unclutters your mailbox in a very, very satisfying way. I will tell you that I, I might change my current policy because right now what happens is all of my email goes to that folder unless it comes from someone I've sent an email to or someone I've put on a list. Hmm. So... Uh, but I I have been missing emails from people, and I have to go into that other folder at least once a day to find them. Right. Uh, and it's a lot of work to do that. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Emails. I, uh, emails just a pain these days. It is. I, I wish. It, it's, it's a shame that email hasn't evolved more than it has I, you for know, many, Dave, many reasons. <laughs> it is. It's time for email to change, and maybe <laughs> – Maybe I'm going to do something. Be the change, that. Joe. Maybe be I the will change. be the change. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that's my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? Dave, my story comes from Vicki Hopes, who writes for the Abbotsford News. Ever been to Abbotsford? I know. It's in <laughs> British <laughs> Columbia, north oh, of the border. okay. So nope. it makes sense. But the story is, the headline is, two Abbotsford residents lose $46,000 in bank scam. Mm. And police warn others to be cautious of clicking links on mobile devices. Okay. So here is how this story unfolds. And I have some questions, actually. And I, I don't know if, if Vicky is, uh, Vicky Hopes is technical, uh, but this article does raise a couple questions. But she says two victims uh, have been, have fallen for this bank scam, uh, according to Constable Art Steele. I love the term constable. We don't have enough constables in the United States. <laughs> also, to to- Art Steele is a Art great Steel, name. Yes. Sounds like a someone in a, a murder mystery novel or something. It does. <laughs> but he's with the Abbotsford Police Department and said that uh, what happened was two people got texts that contained links that installed malware on their phones hmm. uh, or mobile devices, he says, yeah. uh, that then provided username and passwords for their bank account. Hmm. So I don't know... That's the part that makes me go, hmm, because it doesn't line up with the rest of the story. Okay. Uh, because what happens then is the, the fraudsters would call the victims by phone, usually very early in the morning, hmm. claiming to be employees of the bank, and they would ask if the person had made a recent purchase on gift of gift cards. No. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Of course, the person would be like, no, I didn't do that. And they'd be like, okay, so we got some fraudulent activity here. Let's get the ball rolling on getting this done. And of course... Uh, in order to get the ball rolling on resolving fraudulent activity of purchasing gift cards, I need you to go out and buy some MasterCard gift cards. Oh, is that right? Uh, and then pri- provide the information to me, the security codes on them, oh. uh, to make sure everything's good. Huh. Additionally, these people were then asked to take their money, large quantities of money out, and go to a Bitcoin ATM oh, and word. send uh, send money to these send Bitcoin to these scammers. Wow. So. Any money sent to them via Bitcoin is gone. There's no hope of getting that back. Right. Uh, that's you know, unless they can actually catch the scammers and and uh, and get their private keys. Their I mean, there is a way to get it back, but probably not going to happen. Sure. But here's my question about this uh, thing. I don't know if you had taken someone's username and password 
into a bank account, why would you need to call them and, and do fraudulent, some kind of fraudulent activity? Why wouldn't you just go in and send yourself a big check? Hmm. Uh, also, how did these guys get this malicious software installed on people's phones? Was it something in one of the, um, like the uh, Google Play Store or the, probably the Google Play Store, probably not the Apple, maybe the Apple, who knows? Yeah. Uh, the Apple, what's the Apple store called? The App Store. Oh, the App Store. Yeah. App Store, All right? Apple App Store. Got yeah. It. Um, so it's, it's much more likely that these, uh, that these malicious apps exist in one of these, one of these stores and maybe they don't send credentials, but they send information about banking transactions that have happened, or maybe they do send the credentials and that's how these guys get in there, but then they can't, uh, transfer any money because hmm. I, I don't know how this works. I, I, I mean, I, as, as you were describing it, I was wondering, like, if I called someone, I, if I were, if I were doing this scam, right, I would call them in the morning, right, so right. they're they're bleary eyed and half awake, and say, "Hi, I'm from the bank. I'm here to help. Uh, well, there's been some fraudulent activity. I'm going to send you a link to log into your bank account, right, right, and then I would send them the link, which of course is a, a phishing link and it's going to go to a, a web page that looks like the bank. Right. And then they're going to log in with their username and password. Now I've got their credentials and I'm off to the races. Right. That's what I would do. Is that right. not what's going on here? No, what's going on is they're actually telling these people about transactions they, they've seen on the bank account. Okay. So that's how they're getting trust from the people. Right. To show them that they are from the bank. When in fact they're not, they've just gone in and they've gotten this information. I don't know how they've gotten this information. Maybe they're using the credentials to log in and then looking at it. But if you've done that, why not just fraudulently transfer the money? Maybe, mm. um, maybe it's uh, maybe well, there are ways to detect that. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it could also be that if you can get the person who owns the bank account to withdraw the money, right? Then the bank's not going to claw back the money, right? Because that person was authorized to transfer that money. That's probably words, a good point. The yeah. bank didn't do anything wrong. Right. Uh, this person went to the bank and withdrew the money and then bought Bitcoin with it. Right. Right. Yeah. And so the, yeah, so the bank's not, if you got the, if you went in and just transferred the money to your bank account, first of all, that points to your bank account and also right. possibility for clawing it back. So that, that could be a reason. Yeah. I think that's actually good analysis. Yeah. Uh, probably right. Probably correct. So, mm. okay. So maybe it, maybe it is, but I'd still like, still like to know how they got this malicious app installed, why is it in the app store? Right. I, I doubt they got these guys to sideload it from some third-party marketplace, right? Mm. I mean, how do you do that with a text message? Unless the people have already got the uh, developer options enabled, maybe that maybe that's the case. These are questions know. I yeah. have for the— I mean, if you send someone a link, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, on— uh, on planet Apple, where I live, uh, right. someone could send you a link that would take you to an app on the app store. Sure. And then you, they'd say, okay, I, I'm going to take you to our security app, you know, and when you see the install button, just hit install and there you go. Right. right. But that has to be a malicious app that's in the app store. Right. That's right. an excellent point. Yeah. 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 And so, mm -hmm. how do you do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, trust me. The app says that it's uh, Panda Pop, but it's actually our bank security. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually our bank security. We're just doing this to stay one step ahead of the scammers. Yeah. Again, yeah. the um, <laughs> the problem is that a lot of the technology is a mystery to most people using it. Right. It, yeah. It's not. It's not clear how this thing works. All that's clear is that you have a screen in front of you. If you push in this location, then you know if you if you interact in X way, then Y happens. Right. Right. right? So yeah. it all stems from. From that. I think about, I, I certainly have family members who, 
interact with their, uh, their electronic devices in that way. They know what to do, but they don't know why or what it's really doing. They just know this is the order of operations of things I have to press in right. order to do the things I want to do. And that's tough because it makes them more likely to be able to be manipulated mm-hmm. in this sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Interesting story. We will have a link to all of our stories in the show notes. Joe, it's time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Joseph. A lot of name pairing going on in today's episode. (laughs) Got two Dustins and two Joes. Uh, But Joseph writes, I was surprised this made it through my spam filter. I think it's because they CC'd no reply at paypal.com. And as I'm writing this, I just checked. And it's actually paypal at no-reply.com. Those scammers, he says. Okay. It would be interesting to register the name, the domain name, no-reply.com. Yeah. Well, remember there's that whole story about the guy who owned do-not-reply.com? Yeah. And the stuff he got? Got tons of stuff. Classified documents. Classified documents, documents, yeah. All kinds of stuff. Uh, That's a completely different (laughs) – I could go on for days about that. Uh, They had some convincing parts to this and obviously put some thought and work into it. But then they did weird things like leaving out a subject and adding a random string of numbers in the body of the email. Dave, why don't you take it away and read this uh, message that looks like it came from PayPal, but did not. All right. It says, Dear customer, your order has been placed, and here's the order number. Thank you for shopping with PayPal account. Your order has been successfully registered with us. You'll get your shipping as we get confirmation of payment from PayPal. Please keep this receipt number for future reference. You'll need it if you contact customer service at PayPal. You have 24 hours from the date of the transaction to open a dispute. For assistance, call this number. Please don't reply to this email. It'll just confuse the computer that sent it, and you won't get a response. Okay. (laughs) So I I think the random string of numbers that uh, Joseph is referencing here looks kind of like a Bitcoin address, but I don't know that it's a Bitcoin address. Hmm. Doesn't – maybe it is. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, Unfortunately, what Joseph sent was a picture, so I can't uh, copy and paste the text. Uh, I could go and manually enter it, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> I love that. This is a typical scam uh, that you're going, what's going to happen here is you're going to call this number and these guys are going to be like, well, let's, uh, there's going to be some fake tech support guy on the other end and he's, he's going to try to take over your computer and try to get you to send either Bitcoin or money to them or uh, just take all the money out of your account. Right, right. Maybe access. get access to your PayPal account. Exactly. And start draining your bank accounts. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So don't, don't reply to any of these. Never call the number. Look up the PayPal number. Uh, also, by the way, that, that's the way to defend yourself against the story that I had as well. Uh, <laughs> when somebody calls you from the bank, tell them, hang up and call them back. Call the mm-hmm. bank back. All right. Well, our thanks to Joseph for sending that in. And again, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Pete Ford. He is the Senior Vice President of Federal Operations at a company called QSecure. And our conversation is about the implications of the coming wave of quantum computing. Here's my conversation with Pete Ford. I would relate it to uh, where do we stand with Y2K back in 93 
when uh, Peter Jager wrote, this is a big problem and it's 2,308 days away. So we knew that because we knew that uh, January 1st, 2000 was upon us. In our world of quantum right now, particularly quantum communication and quantum computing, that date isn't fully defined, but we can measure how fast things are going based on the technology that we see coming out, the results we see coming out, and the level of effort, not just with individual commercial entities, but with governments. So most people consider that a quantum computer that can break our classical encryption is 4,099 coherent qubits is sometime between three years from now and seven years from now. You know, for folks who are kind of going through their day-to-day lives and, and depending on the various types of encryption that we've all become accustomed to, or they're using our banking apps and, you know, secure web browsers, all that sort of thing, uh, to what degree will this affect them? How, how much concern should they have? They should be pretty concerned uh, in that all of our public key infrastructure is built around asymmetric keys. And those asymmetric keys have uh, PSRK, the pseudo-random keys that are non-polynomial hard math protecting them. So a classical computer can't break those. But the quantum computer that we're concerned with can, and it can break them really fast. So all the information that's protected, and right now well-protected by our PSRK and, and public key infrastructure, won't be protected when that quantum-relevant computer comes out. So anything that's stored or stolen or hacked right now that can be decrypted later is exactly what we need to be concerned with. And those are things like your mortgages, our bank accounts, all of our private information. And on the federal side, what I'm really concerned with, that also means a lot of things that we consider uh, nation state importance, commerce, labor, state, defense, uh, energy, uh, critical infrastructure, et cetera. All of that will be wide open for any adversary to look at. And where are we on the journey to making our encryption routines quantum safe? Well, like anything, we got, or we're a little on our heels, but we're catching up fast. Some of the uh, most important pieces really happened this year. Uh, I like uh, most of IEEE and, and several other uh, high-end organizations consider the quantum decade to have started in 2020. And in, in May of 2021, we had some executive orders that come out and said, we really need this to go faster. We need to get rid of legacy uh, encryption data, metadata that we're holding on to that's already uh, outdated, and we need a modernization plan. And then this year, in 2022, on 19 January and again on 5 May, uh, two executive orders came out. They're, they're called National Security Memorandum. Memorandum 8 was January and Memorandum 10 was in May. They came out and classified, and we have the unclassified version. And the neat part about those was, aside from reinforcing what we saw before, I, I, I don't want legacy equipment and encryption anymore. We need to get rid of that. I need a reinforced modernization plan, post-quantum communication, and quantum resilience. And the, the important pieces were uh, this administration and the legislative branch 
both agree, yes, we're going to put a time frame around this. And those time frames were one, show me the money. That's always a good thing when the Office of Management budget says we have skin in the game because you told us to and we're putting funding against this. And then two, we see the NIST make a move forward to declare an actual post-quantum algorithm on 5 July, just in, in accordance with the timeline that those uh, executive orders came up with. The next piece I think is important to, to look at is three different bills, uh, uh, one on the Senate and two on the House of Representatives going through that have quantum language in them that will put funding and growth and technology development against getting us in the right place to recognize how critical this is going to be as this next, I would say, uh, change in our uh, computing infrastructure will be one of the largest we've ever seen. So I think we're catching up fast. We're putting a lot of people on it uh, and we're, we're leaning into it correctly. The situation is it's, uh, it's not a race run by ourselves, Dave. It's, it's quite frankly run against other uh, nation states and they are leaning into it fast and they have not taken a break. Uh, let's consider uh, China's 14th five-year plan that specifically calls out the fourth informationization revolution. That's hard to say. Basically, the fourth IR. <laughs> and their focus is that quantum core because they know how critical it is uh, to get ahead of that. So we're not running this race alone. So we can't judge it just based on what we're doing. We need to judge it based on the technology advances we see globally. Yeah, I know you and your colleagues are, are really at the front line here in terms of working with the federal government to provide some of these quantum solutions. I'm curious, is there a chance that you know we could have the, the equivalent of a Sputnik moment, you know, where suddenly one of our adversaries, uh, unexpected to us, surprises us with how far ahead they've gotten? Or might we put our own Sputnik moment out to the rest of the world? <laughs> that is a great reference. Uh, and it's one that I use. Uh, the uh, Think about the space race when uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, took a lap around the Earth and all of us looked wide-eyed at it in the U.S. and said, man, we better get busy. Uh, that same thing could happen uh, at any given time. And it's really hard to find out. Uh, for, for us looking at what we were thinking, let's consider we're, we're uh, back in that day we, we had the telltale indicators of what was going on. And then once it became a newsworthy event and we saw Russia in space, we started catching up. The same thing will be true here, but it will be harder to find. And it could be a very devastating moment where something's released as an attack that we weren't ready for, or we see some things solved technologically that show the advances that other nation states have made that we haven't made. And then we have to come honest where we are in this race. Yeah, Dave, those things could happen in a moment. It's a little bit easier to see uh, and study uh, spacecraft on pads and infrastructure and logistics and some of the more mechanical, open, obvious things that happen in a space race or a nuclear race. In this race, uh, a lot of the quantum world we're living in, uh, first of all, it's pretty complicated. It's what Einstein called uh, spooky action at a distance. So it, it's hard to understand just how far uh, other technology has advanced. And then it's also hard to imagine just how how much or how big uh, a result could happen from a quantum advance from another nation if we're not ready for it or at least expecting it. Are there questions that, that folks should be asking their financial institutions? Or, you know, if I'm a small business owner, uh, should I be working with my suppliers to make sure that 
they're on top of this? Or are we at the moment now where people need to be uh, doing their own due diligence? I think so. Just like anything, it's always, it pays to have insurance. So we have HIPAA regulations. We have personally identifiable information that we need to protect. We need to start asking those questions, uh, especially at the broader, larger level, all the way down to high-end investors and other uh, folks that are trying to make long-term investments. How are you protecting the information that you have on me so that we can continue to do good work together in the future? So that, that question just in and of itself says, are you prepared for the future and making sure that the investment that I'm making in you or the investment you're making in me to protect my body so that I last a long time in healthcare, that you're ready to protect who I am and all the information around uh, the business we do. So that means you have a on your game plan, just like our uh, nation does, you have a modernization plan. You have a plan for post-quantum communication and quantum resilience, i.e., I, I usually call that pre- and post-quantum. I would like to have no, no heartbeats raised, no concern whatsoever. Before that quantum computer, the, the cryptographically relevant quantum computer comes out, and after that we already have a plan in place that keeps us steady, ensuring freedom and protection of information beforehand. Those are valid questions to ask. And they're usually followed up with uh, how much is it going to cost? And that secondarily follows up with what does it cost if you lose this information? So you need to weigh those ahead of time. And then that, that's one of the reasons I really like what we're doing is we're providing and making every attempt to provide a backward compatibility for post-quantum comm. So the current infrastructure you have, if we can put 60,000 quantum resilient keys over your current layer, that isn't going to be broken by that quantum computer, then you get to keep doing exactly what you're doing without a significant bandwidth or latency hits, and your information is protected now and then after. Joe, what do you think? Dave, I want to start by saying this. I am by no means an expert in quantum computing. (laughs) (laughs) Is anybody? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Right, right. Um, you know, if you if you read one of my favorite books in in the world is a book by Simon Singh called The Code Book. That's essentially a, a history of cryptography. Okay, it is a great book. Yeah, uh, and it's really easy to understand right up until he starts talking about quantum cryptography. Okay, and that's where I go. Like, I have no idea what's going on. Here. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting, and I kind of understand the the high level concepts of it. Um, like, for example, if you have something that is uh, a problem like factoring large numbers, mm-hmm. uh, a quantum computer can solve that in, I think, one operation if it has enough bits in it. Hmm. Uh, whereas a traditional computer has to try everything between zero and the square root of the number or one or two in the square root of the number, hmm. right? So uh, to see if it's a factor. And that takes a very, very, very long time because these numbers are very, very large. Mm-hmm. Uh and because these numbers are very, very large, you're going to need to build a quantum computer that has a very large number capability, like a 496-bit quantum computer. Right. If you're thinking about our current architecture, we have 64 bits. And people are like, well, I mean, they can't build, uh, you know, if they, if, they're having, if they can't build a 496-bit computer for our desktop – why would you build something like that for a quantum computer? But the thing about this is you're not talking about a production computer. You're not talking about a microcomputer. 
Think back to the days of Univac, mm-hmm. right? You're building something like that. So you only need to build one of these computers that has the capability of processing 496-bit uh, infrared <laughs> right. Right. numbers, right? right? Which is the the large cryptography numbers. Right. Um, Next thing you know, you got the computer in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that the Earth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I think the Y2K analogy is a good one. Uh, and I'll tell you why I think it's a good one, because Peter DeJager made the uh, announcement of the problem in 1993, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we started panicking about uh, Y2K? <laughs> it's like 1998, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's when we started seeing all the jobs come out and go, we got to fix this problem. Five years of doing nothing while right. this happened. Right. Uh, knowing that full well that it was coming. And I expect the same thing is going to happen here with quantum computing. Uh, there's no firm date either. So it's it's not going to be taken care of until the problem is upon us. Mm-hmm. It's it's going to be like you were describing, the the Sputnik moment. Right. And everybody's going to go, oh, holy crap. Right. What's happened? <laughs> right. Uh, there will be some orgs that have prepared. Uh, there are – and I think a lot of them are going to be in fintech. Uh, I yeah. think they're going to be the first ones on board. But most will not be prepared for this. I think that's there's there's my prediction. Yeah, I uh, agree. I, I've I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think human beings have proven ourselves a reactive species. Yes. <laughs> so this is my Jostradamus prediction. Okay. <laughs> not everybody is. Most people will not be prepared for this. Most organizations will not be prepared for this. Right. Uh, here is another problem about the dawn of uh, quantum computing. Intercepting communication on the internet is actually pretty easy, mm-hmm. right? And that's why we use cryptography. The assumption is that anybody is seeing your information go across the wire. So we've been cri- encrypting our, our, our communications more and more. But for years now, governments around the world have been hoarding this information with the idea that in sometime in the future, this, this encryption will be easy to break. Right. Right, either due to Moore's law or due to some revolutionary thing like quantum computing, and here we are. Uh, according to Pete, that will happen in the next three to seven years, and all the information that has already been captured is just going to be decrypted, yeah, uh, and relatively quickly as well. Uh, there is, there is something very interesting that came out uh, on July fifth. NIST uh, published a an article that said they have announced four algorithms that are quantum resistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been working on this for six years. So NIST has been out in front of this, which is great. Uh, I have a link. Can we put that in the show notes? Sure. Okay. So it's there's a link to the, to the NIST article at NIST.gov about the, uh, the four articles that are quantum resistant. So that's great news. If you're responsible for maintaining infrastructure at your company, uh, this needs to be something that you're working on now. Uh, this is something that has to be taken into consideration now and needs to be brought to the forefront of what's going on because soon this this uh, this all these communications will be vulnerable to cryptographic attacks uh, or to uh, quantum attacks on the cryptography and mm. your algorithms that you use to protect your communication with your customers needs to be protected against that. Yeah, I mean, isn't it going to take sort of widespread adoption in things like our browsers to really? Yeah, make it a is. difference. They're going to have to be rolled out into browsers. Going to have to be rolled out into web servers. Um, yeah. I, I think that these uh, uh, these algorithms are pretty modular, so that it, I don't mm. know that that's a big problem. Right. It just needs to be done. Yeah. It needs to be done. Well, I'm sure we'll get on top of it in the same way that we did with Y2K. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not optimistic about this one, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
With good reason. Yeah. <laughs> With good reason. All right. Well, our thanks to Pete Ford uh, for joining us again. He's from Q Secure, and we appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 